All right. We are back in Acts chapter 2. We're working our way through what is traditionally called Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. I've already clarified that it's not so much a sermon in the traditional sense, um, in, in the sense of a, uh, a message meant to instruct the church. The church was present, the brand new church, the first church, the 120 disciples that were filled with the Spirit there from the upper room on the day of Pentecost. But this message was not so much for their sake. This was for the sake of the some 3,000 people that gathered from the city of Jerusalem just out of curiosity. What is going on as the Spirit of God had filled those in the upper room? And Peter standing up in the midst of that crowd as now the church has spilled out into the streets and is bringing this gospel message to a community of unbelievers, unsaved people. And uh, what we've focused on so far is we've spent a couple of weeks looking at how Peter starts this message, which he uh, references a prophecy from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. We, we've looked carefully at that prophecy. We've seen that uh, it is a fulfillment, as Peter rightly interprets it and applies it, of what Joel had pointed to, which was this new and special experience that's happened for the very first time in history of the, the, fo- the true followers of the Lord being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, that being a signal of the start of what he references, along with Joel, uh, uh, as the last days. This is the, in a sense, the, the pushing of the button from heaven to signal we are now entering into the final generation. And it's not the final generation of all of history, it's the final generation, as we've identified it, of the old covenant. So we're in this transition period now of 40 years, starting in 30 AD when the day of Pentecost is taking place, ending in the events of 70 AD, and they're in this transition period where the new covenant has already started, and the old covenant is still in force, but is coming to a final end. And it finally ends, of course, with the end of the temple and all of the services that are connected to that temple. Now, that reference of the Joel prophecy ends with this line, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. From that point, Peter leaves behind the Joel prophecy reference, and he enters into the the real focal point of his message that day. And what he is doing from this point forward, starting in verse 16, is going to be our concern and our focus. So what I want to do this morning is first I want to I want to just read through the entire message that Peter proclaims that day. And then I'm going to do a brief overview of the entire message and I'm going to highlight some very specific focal points of what was on his heart to proclaim. So I'm going to start reading in verse 16, where he does first reference Joel's prophecy. And I'm going to read through to verse 36, where his message ends. Peter proclaims by the Spirit of God, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And by the way, let me just say, as I'm reading through it, just pay attention to what Peter focuses on as he is proclaiming the gospel that day. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, 
that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where we've come to in our study so far. But reading on in verse 22, as he now shifts gears spiritually. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or a resurrection of Christ of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now at that point, Peter ends what we would call his message or his, traditionally speaking, his sermon. And we have a brief description of how his message impacted the people that had gathered to listen to it that day. And then following that, Peter gives practical exhortations of how they should respond. What should they do with this new information that they've just heard for the first time? Now, what Peter does here in this Pentecost message is he proclaims the gospel for the first time following the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ and following him and the other 
119 believers that were filled with the Spirit that day following their experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the first gospel proclamation of the new covenant in full force. Therefore, based upon a principle of Bible study, Bible interpretation, and Bible understanding, and it's called, and I didn't come up with this terminology, but I've, I've followed this in my own studies throughout the years, and it's always been a helpful way to understand what God has revealed. The principle of first mention. That is anywhere in scripture where you find something happening for the very first time or something being mentioned for the first time, there is usually important information in that first occurrence that's meant to give us a framework for understanding all the subsequent occurrences of that same thing. So I'm telling you, this is the first gospel proclamation of the new covenant in full force. There's something for us to learn from this in terms of proclaiming the gospel message and representing it to representing that message that saving message to an unbelieving world so i'm going to describe what happens this day as peter's gospel now what i mean by that is not that peter has his own personal gospel and no one else can preach it i mean that god chose peter to be the first proclaimer of the gospel in the new covenant and because of that there are some things for us to pay attention to here. Now, in our own generation, the church continues to preach the gospel. We're all aware, all true believers are aware that we have a, an, an accountability to the Lord, a responsibility on his behalf and in his name to not just hold the saving message for ourselves, be affected by, by it ourselves, be changed and transformed and saved by it ourselves, but we're responsible to in turn, share the saving message with others who have not yet been saved. We don't know in advance who is and isn't going to respond in a saving way, but as we studied last week, we are, we are responsible, we're made responsible by the Lord as his messengers in whatever generation we happen to live and in whatever culture and society we happen to live to make a broadcast proclamation to all that are willing to listen and then let the Lord sort out by, as Jerry referenced this morning, his effectual call as a shepherd in their hearts who will respond in an actual saving way. But what tends to happen, and I've noticed this, I want to call your attention to it, what tends to happen in Christian circles is what I can only describe as somewhat of a gospel reduction. Um, we have a few cooks in our midst, people that are, you know, that cook for a hobby and are good at it. How many of you, I, I'm not a cook, but I, I've heard about this. I've watched enough cooking shows on TV to be aware of it. How many of you are familiar with making a, a, a sauce that's called a reduction? Uh, so several of you are familiar with this concept. What do they do when they, re, when they make a reduction sauce? And basically, put, it, put the sauce on the stove and, and continue to cook it, continue to cook it until you have less, but it's more potent, right? Less, but it's more potent. So there, there has been somewhat, I believe, of a gospel reduction that's happened in the modern church. Now, I'm not trying to say that the, the entire modern church is off base in its proclamation of the gospel. I do not believe that. 
But I think too much of what passes for gospel proclamation ends up being a reduction, which is that we kind of have overcooked the gospel message and as a result, there's less information that's communicated. Maybe there's greater potency because we only focus on certain things, but we're not focusing on everything maybe that we should when we are doing what we call sharing the gospel with an unbelieving world around us. So what tends to happen with this gospel reduction concept, and, and the, this is just based on my observations, there are two primary focal points that tend to get put in front of unbelievers as this is the gospel message. And those two focal points in modern terms are the church communicating to a lost world, Jesus loves you. That's the kind of the essence of it. Jesus loves you. And then alongside that, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So, in terms of the first, is it a true or untrue statement that Jesus loves people that are lost in this world? It's a true statement. God so loved the world, that's not the church. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 easily the most famous single verse in the New Testament. And, and there's nothing wrong with that focal point to say Jesus loves you. And is it a true or untrue statement that Jesus died on the cross for sins? It's a true statement. It's certainly true. But if we've reduced the gospel message to those two focal points only, I think we are missing somewhat of the important information that as Peter was speaking directly, it just immediately filled with the Holy Spirit that day. I mean, he has just been filled with the Spirit in a, a great and powerful way, and he's given immediately the opportunity to proclaim the message. The crowd gathers, he stands up and he speaks, and we can be confident that what he is focused on is what we should be focused on. But some of the things he focuses on I never hear included in what we would call gospel sharing or gospel proclamation. So what I've identified as I've looked carefully at this message that he preached that day is that Peter had one main theme. And in all of the proclamations of the gospel from this day all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, which is still ahead of us in our study, this one main theme is consistent through all the times that Peter proclaims the message, all the times that Philip the evangelist proclaims the message, all the times that Paul the apostle later proclaims the message, this one main theme is the consistent main theme of all of those gospel proclamations. But then Peter also has seven what I'm calling sub-themes. These sub-themes are connected to the main theme but they're important focal points to drive home the main point of the main theme. So what is the main theme? The main theme is Jesus himself. Peter starts this portion in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2 with this declaration. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then everything he says from the end of verse 22 all the way through verse 36 is various elements and aspects of the story of who Jesus of Nazareth really is and all that he accomplished and all that God himself from heaven did in order to authenticate that Jesus is who he really is and has done what he has really done. But Jesus himself is the main theme. Now, as I went through, as I go through the rest of the book of Acts, what I find is in every single gospel proclamation, Jesus is that main theme. But the sub-themes vary from gospel opportunity to gospel opportunity. The sub-themes are not identical in every other, what we would call sermon or gospel message that's shared throughout the rest of the book of Acts. In other words, sharing the gospel is not in that sense a formula. Now, I know with good intentions, there are lots and lots of evangelical efforts that have been made throughout 2,000 years of church history that have kind of reduced the gospel to a formula, like tick off these four points, say this, and then say this, and then say this, and then say this, so that you can kind of rehearse it. And I think the point of those efforts for gospel proclamation is, as believers, sometimes we can lack confidence in the message we're proclaiming, or not so much confidence in the message, maybe confidence in our ability to remember all of the important points and to focus on what I should focus on it, when I should focus on it, and maybe I won't say it exactly the right way. So if I, if I have something that I can rehearse, something that I can kind of memorize, something that's functioning more like a formula for me, it might make it easier for me in that moment of opportunity that the Lord brings my way. But you know, when the Lord sent his disciples out, he actually instructed them, don't approach the opportunities I give you to represent me in that formulaic way. He even says to his disciples at one point, don't think ahead of time what you're going to say. I'll be with you in that moment. I'll give you the grace that you need to know what to say when the moment comes. He wants his disciples to lean on him. It doesn't mean he's telling them, I want you to be as ignorant as possible before your next opportunity for the gospel. You should know the gospel message. You should know that the main theme of any saving message is Jesus himself. And then you should have some, some at least basic understanding of these sub-themes that I'm going to identify in just a moment and talk about. But not in a formulaic way. Not in a way of, I, okay, I ticked off number one, number two, number three. What was number four again? You know, don't approach it that way. It may be in any given opportunity that the Lord gives you. He only wants the first three sub-themes highlighted or the last three or the middle three or maybe even just one sub-theme with each opportunity that the Lord gives you. But the main theme should remain the main theme who is, of course, Jesus himself. So let's identify, at least from Peter's first message, what these, what I'm calling sub-themes are. And I think the benefit of that is just to broaden our perspective to how wide the gospel message really is. It's a message that's far wider than simply reducing it to Jesus loves you and Jesus died on the cross for you. It includes all of these things. Let me just give you the list. I think we have them 
uh, up here on the uh, overhead. The list of themes that Peter emphasizes is, and the first one we've already covered in the Joel prophecy, the coming judgment. For Peter, the coming judgment was the events of 70 AD. In a single generation time, people were going to experience a devastating judgment upon Jerusalem and upon the temple that would forever change their relationship with the Lord. For us, if we bring the element of coming judgment into our our, our gospel proclamation, is there any judgment coming that people that don't know the Lord should be concerned about today? Well, of course, there's always, I mean, the Lord may or may not judge this nation, probably will. It certainly deserves it. It's certainly overdue. But there is a final judgment that's certainly coming that everyone should be concerned about. And the entire population of planet Earth motors through their daily life trying to ignore and suppress that understanding that at the end of their life, they're going to be held accountable for their actions. But it's true that they will be held accountable for their actions by the Holy One who will sit in judgment over them. And that should produce a great concern and awareness of their need for a savior. So coming judgment is always a helpful sub-theme to introduce in a gospel proclamation. The others, and I'll just read the list and then I'll go through these one at a time. Peter focuses on the miracles of Christ. Peter focuses on, and this is one most people, most believers wouldn't even think to include this in a gospel proclamation. Predestination. He's talking to unbelievers here, but he's talking to them about predestination in a particular way, which I'll mention in a moment. The resurrection, of course, is a common theme that occurs throughout the book of Acts in all of their gospel proclamations. Prophecy. He brings up the prophecy of King David in the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, and then he also brings in another prophecy of King David in Psalm 110. The ascension of Christ. Now back in our study in chapter one of the book of Acts, we stopped and did a mini-series on the significance of the ascension of Christ. We spent some six weeks focused on the importance of the ascension, and that was important for Peter to include in this first gospel proclamation. And then the final one I'm calling identification, and I'll explain that in just a moment. So let me go through these one by one in terms of the significance of why would Peter include this in a gospel sharing opportunity. He speaks about the miracles that God did through Jesus. And I'm going to develop this once I'm finished with this brief overview of all the things that he covered. I'm going to develop this a little bit further in a moment. But the idea of it is he mentions the miracles of Jesus as a category of activities that Jesus did. And he, he proclaims that, that God did the miracles that he did through Jesus for one special reason. They were God attesting to the person of Jesus. I'll save that um, for a few minutes when we get to that section. Second, or third really, predestination. Why would you share the, the concept of predestination in a gospel proclamation? 
Now, normally when we think of predestination and when we talk about it as a church, and there are many passages in God's word that address the issue of predestination, <clears throat> normally we're, we're focused on predestination as it relates individually and personally to us. God had a special plan and a special purpose. And from his side, not from ours, from his side, already determined to have a relationship with us before we were ever born and even going so far back as eternity passed before the world itself began. Now, we normally think of predestination in those terms, and that's a valid way to think of it, but Peter doesn't say that to the group of people that are gathered there to hear the gospel that day because he doesn't know with certainty that every person that's gathered to listen to him actually is a predestined one. So why does he bring up predestination at all? He is talking about the predestination of Jesus himself. He's focused on how God predestined Jesus to accomplish and fulfill the plan of salvation in a way that no other person could possibly fulfill it. It's one of the proofs that only Jesus can rightly be identified as Lord, as Savior, and as Messiah because he was predestined to fulfill the plan of salvation. Then he brings up the resurrection, of course, and he does so primarily by referencing Psalm, 100, or excuse me, Psalm 16, which was a, a, a psalm, a worship song written by King David under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but it has elements in Psalm 16, and eventually we'll get to that and we will look at that. We won't do this today. But we will look at that in more detail in that it's called what we identify as a messianic psalm. It's a a song, a worship song, written hundreds of years before the events actually happened, detailing and describing what would happen to the Messiah when he was first killed and then when he would be raised from the dead. And Peter goes into detail to prove that David is not singing about himself as Israel wrongly understood the song. He is not singing about himself because he makes the point that King David died and is buried in his, his grave is right here. We, can, we know where King David is still buried, but that he was singing about the coming of the Messiah and how death could not conquer him, but that he would conquer death. Then there is a focus on prophecy. And of course, the prophecy is connected to the resurrection of Christ in Psalm 16, but he also references Psalm 110. And we'll look at that in more detail as well. So the element of bringing Bible prophecy, Old Testament material in a New Testament and New Covenant proclamation of the gospel. And this particular part of the Old Testament especially important because it's predicting the future before it actually happens and it predicts it with perfect description and declaration of what actually did happen and what was fulfilled. The the fingerprint, so to speak, or the thumbprint of God on the events of history and in the circumstances of the life and mission of the Lord Jesus. Then he also focuses attention on the ascension of Christ. He uses the word exaltation rather than ascension. 
And we saw in our ascension study that the exaltation of Christ is how God viewed the event of the ascension. So we know he's talking about the return of Christ to heaven. But when he arrives in heaven, he is exalted to the highest place in heaven, second only to God the Father himself. Would you normally think about proclaiming that in a gospel sharing moment? I mean, you're talking to unbelievers who may not even really believe in heaven. And they certainly wouldn't understand necessarily the concept of of Jesus after his resurrection returning to heaven and being installed at God's right hand in the highest place over all of creation. But apparently Peter felt like that was pertinent information to communicate in his sharing of the gospel. And then his final element I'm calling identification where he makes sure that Israel understands and he even uses the phrase, Israel can now know for certain that God has made Jesus both the crucified one, both Lord and Christ. And we will focus in our future studies on the significance of those two terms that he is now identified by. All right, so that's a a brief overview of the gospel as Peter represented it to unbelievers. And again, I don't want you to look at this in a formulaic way. I don't want you to take these seven sub-themes into your understanding and then go out and think to yourself, okay, when I share the gospel, I've got to cover all seven of these points and I've got to cover them in exactly this order. There is freedom with each circumstance, each person that you're sharing with, each group that the Lord gives you opportunity to share with, to choose various elements of the what we call sub-themes. And there will even be a couple of new ones beyond this that are introduced later in the book of Acts that are good material to focus on. As long as in your gospel representation, you keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to dig into the next of these seven focal points of Peter. We've covered the coming judgment, a warning, which is in the the prophecy of Joel. That brings us to the second category, which is the role of the miracles of Jesus in gospel proclamation. And it's from verse 22 only. So let me reread verse 22. Peter declares, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. All right, so the first thing, and this is right after the Joel prophecy, right after the warning of coming judgment, but the first thing on Peter's heart by the Spirit of God to make sure the crowd that's assembled really hears is that Jesus is a man who has been attested to them by God himself. Now, attested is the key word. It's important for us to rightly define it. Here's what the word means. It means, or it describes to exhibit 
or to demonstrate publicly as proven. And we would attach the, the concept of something being authenticated. Something being authenticated. Um, there's, a big, uh, there's a big group of people that um, collect sports memorabilia you know, like a basketball that their championship team has signed or uh, a jersey that's been worn by a famous baseball player and signed or a bat that they used to hit the big home run that won the game or won the World Series. And in that uh, industry of sports memorabilia, the thing that matters more than anything else is, is your memorabilia that you've collected, is it authenticated? That's, that's the most important thing. And they have what they call a concern about the provenance of that memorabilia. Meaning, can you, can you prove that that bat that you're presenting to me for sale, that that bat is actually the bat that that famous player used to win the World Series? Because what's the, what's the possibility in that industry? Someone could just go to Big Five and buy the same bat, the same brand, the same style bat, and then take out a, you know, a, a marker and, and kind of approximate the signature of the player and then bring it to a dealer and say, here, this is the bat that the, that the player used to win the World Series. If it's not the actual bat, what's the actual value? Well, the value is whatever you paid to buy it at Big Five, and that's it. And now that it's used by being taken out of the store, it probably has less value than the, the bats that are still in the store. It certainly doesn't have more value. So the most important thing in that industry is authentication. And that's really the issue that Peter addresses first. Jesus is a man who has been authenticated by God himself and there is a reason why he needed to be authenticated. And there is a way that God went about authenticating him. So what, in terms of the reason why for the authentication, why would Jesus need to be authenticated in the eyes of the community of people that are now hearing the gospel proclamation? Because there was more than one person who claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, Jesus warned multiple times his disciples about that issue. Let's remind ourselves of a couple of times that he did so in the Matthew 24 prophecy. Matthew 24, let's, let's head back there and look at two verses. You probably remember these because it's not that long ago that we were in this portion. Matthew 24, verse Five. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the context then was the events that would take place between 30 and 70 AD and how there would be special events that they, if Jesus tells them about them in advance, that they would be able to recognize them when they happen, that we're pointing toward the coming judgment in 70 AD. But this, the very first thing that Jesus mentions and I'll actually start reading in verse 4, and I'll read verse 5 along with it. He says, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. 
which is a, it's a, um, a word of response, an exhortation. It's a word of responsibility. He's making his disciples, when he says, see to it, he's saying, I'm making you responsible to not be led astray. And, and what's the concern? Verse 5, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, which is just the Greek translation of the concept of the Hebrew Messiah, the chosen one, the special one. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. His name as he references it here is not the name Jesus. It's the name Messiah. It's the name Christ. He's saying many will come and claim to be the Messiah when biblically we understand there can only be one. There's not two Messiahs or three Messiahs or five Messiahs. It's just a single one. But others will claim to be that one. And skipping down, looking at verse 24... He continues the warning. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, what we saw in that study, and, and uh, just to be clear, he's not saying there will be false messiahs that will arise and they'll do just exactly the same kind of miracles that I myself have done. If that were true, we're going to have a very confusing issue with trying to discern and decide who's the true messiah but there were people that arose and claimed to do great miracles um i don't know if this is the best example i i might lose some of you with this example but um i just started watching the uh the TV, the miniseries uh, based on the Star Wars universe, which is uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or the Obi-Wan series. So just started watching it last night. How many of you have seen that Obi-Wan series? Um, I don't want to tell the whole story because it'll burn up all my time, but essentially uh, the Jedi are being hunted down by the evil emperor. And so there's very few of them left. And there's one true Jedi who is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he's on a mission, and he runs into a guy that claims to be a Jedi. But, uh, and he's doing all these force power demonstrations to prove that he's a Jedi. Like he, he puts his hand over there, and the, the, the window closes, and then he puts it up again, and the window opens up. And, and it, it, it just seems like, oh, this guy is certainly a Jedi, because look, he does signs and wonders just like Obi-Wan Kenobi can do. Uh, and I'm talking about Jedi signs and wonders. You understand the difference between real signs and wonders and Jedi signs and wonders? I, I don't want to lose you on that. And what Obi-Wan discerns is that the guy is a, what we would call a fake. He's a fraud. He's a, a scam artist. And he's doing it with like magnets in his, the palm of his hand that are attached to the window, that kind of thing. He's not really, he's not really capable of doing the actual miraculous works but he's able to fool people into thinking that he's doing. So when in Matthew 24, when Jesus says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with there. So um, Jesus warned his disciples about being led astray by false messiahs, false prophets, that's why Jesus needed to be authenticated. He needed to be proven to be the one true Messiah. And there's also a, a correlating principle which goes all the way back into Old Testament times that whenever God brought a true 
um, a true follower of his into a place of spiritual prominence where his people needed to know this is the one I've chosen in this generation to lead you and to represent me and to serve my purposes in the earth. God would often do special things, miraculous level things through that individual in order to give his people the confidence that this is the one that we should follow. For instance, he called and assigned Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and eventually right to the promised land. And what did God do through Moses? He did miracles through Moses. There were a number of miracles that he did through him. And then when Moses finished his ministry and God replaced him with Joshua, he did a miracle through Joshua in the parting of the waters of the river Jordan, which was similar to the parting of the Red Sea under Moses in order to give his people confidence that just like I chose Moses to lead you, I have now chosen Joshua to lead you. So the second reason why God needed to attest Jesus was to give the people of God, the true, those that would be the true followers of the Lord, the confidence that God is working through this man and he's chosen for this special purpose. Now, in the case of Jesus, of course, he did, as we'll see in a few moments, a greater number of miracles than anyone else had ever done in history and greater miracles in their quality and kind than anyone had ever done before. I'll just give you a short list of the categories of miracles that Jesus did. He raised, and you're familiar with all of these, of course. He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of people that were even, had even been born blind into this world. No one had ever done that in all of history before Jesus. He restored the limbs of those who were lame. He walked on water. No one had ever done that before. He turned, of course, water to wine in his first great miracle. He multiplied food. He um, cast out demons and he healed entire multitudes of people. And I've just given a brief overview of the important things that he did. There were many others besides these as well. Now, in Peter's proclamation, let's head back to Acts 2, he categorizes these miracles. And I think we are meant to pay attention to the categories that he names. We're still in Acts 2.22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, that's category number one, and wonders, category number two, and signs, category number three, that God did through him. I'm combining those three into one category and calling them miracles, but there is a reason for the three categories. It has to do with this. Mighty works as a category points to the miracles of Christ as proving that God's power and only God's power is the source of this miracle. It's a mighty work of God in this circumstance because it's such an amazing thing that only God himself could do this. No human being, even believing human beings, are capable of just willing a miracle to happen. How many times would you have willed a miracle to happen if you had the ability to do so in your own life circumstance? But these are mighty works that only God could accomplish. 
The second category is wonders. This points to the impact of observing the miracle on the perspective of the observer. It, if it's a true miracle of God and you've seen it happen in front of your own eyes, it causes your heart to wonder at what you have just seen. So it causes an abrupt and dramatic shift in your perspective. You'll never look at the world the same again if you've seen God work in such a way. And so it is called a wonder. And then the third category is these miracles are called signs, which simply emphasizes that there's a message in the miracle. And we've talked about this concept before when we were doing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, but it's an important thing to revisit and to remind you of. These are spiritual messages from God. Yes, yes, God actually did something like when he opened the eyes of the blind, there was a practical transformation of the eyesight of the person, but it's a spiritual message in that, which is that every human being in this world is born spiritually blind. That one that he opens their eyes was born physically blind, but it's alerting us to the fact that everyone comes into this world spiritually blind. Everyone in the experience of salvation has their eyes opened to see the truth from God's perspective for the very first time. And every miracle has that kind of message woven into it. So these are mighty works, they're wonders and they're signs that God himself did in their midst as an authentication that Jesus and only Jesus, therefore, is who God says he is. Now let's look at just real quickly, for the sake of our time, some correlating passages that just confirm these principles that I've described. The first one is in Hebrews chapter two. I'm not, I'm not gonna do a lot of teaching on these passages. They're just helping us to understand the principles that Peter is functioning on in his message that day. Hebrews 2, I'll read verses 1 through 4. The essence of these four verses is there's a gospel proclamation and side by side with the gospel proclamation, there are mighty works that God does to confirm that message that's just been proclaimed. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that's the Old Testament message, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the New Testament message. It was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus was the first to proclaim the new covenant message of the gospel, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness. And how did God bear witness? Not by a, a voice from heaven in this case, but by works in the earth. Special works, powerful works. God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Right, let's look at another one. John chapter five, Gospel of John. This is from the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself, where he is identifying the role of miracles in his own ministry. 
John 5.36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. That's John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. And he's not talking about his carpentry work. He's talking about his miraculous works. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have, not, have, you have never seen. He's saying, look, you've never heard God speak. You've never seen God for yourself. But what you have seen is you've seen me doing miracles. Miracles that only God could do. Therefore, you can know that God truly did send me as the Messiah. Also in the Gospel of John, uh, later, chapter 20, I'll read verses 30 and 31. This is, uh, John has two summary statements near the end of his gospel account. This is the first of those two. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, which is the miracles that John, by the Spirit of God, chose to include in his gospel account. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by by believing, you may have life in his name. So what's the role of miracles in John's perspective? The role of miracles are to authenticate that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you can believe that, and you can believe that in a saving way. Chapter 21 of John, just a single verse, 25. This is his final summary of his gospel. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now this is a bit of what we call a hyperbole or an exaggeration, but it doesn't mean he's just making stuff up. It means that he's really wanting to emphasize hey, I've just given you the tip of the iceberg of what miracles Jesus did in my observation. I'm an eyewitness, and I'm letting you know I couldn't have included them all. If I had, I'd never stop writing. And then, the la- heading back to John, uh, excuse me, Acts 2, we'll end here. There's one last phrase I want to be sure to emphasize in verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, in this phrase, in your midst, as you yourselves know. Once a miracle is done in the midst of a group of people that do not yet know the Lord, now they have been made against their choice. They've been made witnesses to the truth of the gospel themselves. And the only options they have, they can believe it, or they can reject it and deny it and lie against the truth. But once you've seen God moving, once you've been an eyewitness to the hand of God moving in the circumstances of this world in a powerful and miraculous way, you have been forced into the role of a witness to the truth. 
you are now an eyewitness. Yes, you've benefited from either experiencing the miracle or seeing it happen, but you are now responsible to testify to the truth of what that miracle is pointing toward. Now, let's just take a moment and talk about application for our lives today. And I'm giving you five key concepts to take away from this particular study. First, learn. And what are we to learn from Peter's message and what he chose to focus on in terms of of having one main theme and these seven sub-themes? I think we can learn from Peter's example what sharing the gospel really means. It's, It's a bigger message than we might think. Again, don't reduce it to just Jesus loves you or just Jesus died for your sins. There are, there are great and wonderful things to proclaim about the story of Christ as Peter did. Interestingly, Peter never said in his day of Pentecost message, Jesus loves you to the crowd. He didn't say those words. Doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love them and the 3,000 were saved, so clearly Jesus did love them. But Peter never said those words to them. Neither, interestingly, he did mention twice the crucifixion of Christ, but he didn't mention it as a saving death. He didn't even say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He mentioned, you have some responsibility in his death. And then he shifted the emphasis immediately to the resurrection as the the great proving element that the one who died on the cross was truly the Messiah. In spite of being killed, God raised him from the dead. So learn from Peter's example how broad the gospel message actually is in terms of what was communicated. Second key concept, keep the focus on Jesus when God gives you a gospel opportunity to share the message, the saving message with someone that does not yet know the Lord. What's the main focus? The focus, the main thing in the gospel is Jesus himself. And there's so much you can share about him. Like John said at the end of his gospel, if I were to say it all, we'd be here day and night and for days to come. I can't possibly say it all, but choose something important from the story of Jesus to share with them, but keep the focus where it should be on the person of Jesus himself or the work of Jesus. Third principle, realize the value of prophecy in presenting the gospel. Don't leave the Old Testament out of your opportunity to share the message of the Lord. God's been at work throughout all of history, and the Bible prophecies are a very important tool in our tool belt of sharing the gospel today even, because there are few things that prove the value of what God has communicated in his word, the spiritual nature of what God has communicated in his word, more powerfully than a Bible prophecy that's already been fulfilled. If you can demonstrate, look, this man talked about the resurrection of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus was actually raised from the dead and then he was raised from the dead. That communicates something powerfully to the people that you're sharing with. The fourth is recognize the role of miracles as God's testimony of Jesus. You know, sometimes when we share the gospel, we're almost apologetic in what we're sharing. You can be bold in saying this, Jesus did things in his life and ministry in this world that had never, ever, ever been done before. And those 
miraculous and amazing things were the testimony of God himself setting Jesus into a category of one, an exclusive category. He must be the Messiah. He must be the Savior because of how God worked miraculously through him. And then the, the fifth and final one, of course, believe for yourself that Jesus is fully and completely and perfectly attested or authenticated by God as Lord and Christ. Believe it in a saving way and communicate that to those that you are sharing the gospel with that this should be the conclusion of the information that you communicate to them. The authentication of Jesus as the Lord and as the Messiah. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time together this morning, our time to worship you, our time to pray together as your people, our time to sit and share the holy meal that you provided for us in the table of the Lord as your family and our time to study your word together. And I'm thankful for the time ahead of us of sharing one another's um, just friendship and fellowship. And we pray for your blessing on it all. Thank you, Lord, for what you chose to do through Peter on the day of Pentecost. And I pray that it would open our perspective in terms of the possibilities of what you would have us to share in the gospel opportunity moments that you bring our way. Grant us grace for that, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.